For those who do not know me, I'm, uh, I'm Matt Young. I'm the worship pastor here at Village. And so some weeks you'll see me involved on the music team, other times maybe behind the scenes on a production end. Uh, but this morning I have the privilege of, of opening the word with you as we continue in our First Peter series. Um, so if you've been with us over the last few weeks, then, then you know that we are currently in a series on, on First Peter, and it's called Exiled. And the whole premise of the book, Peter's writing to a people who are relatively new converts, most of them, who have come to Christ, but they've been dispersed. They've been dispersed out into, out of their homes. They've been pushed out based largely on persecution that they were facing. They fled to these other areas. And so Peter's writing this letter to encourage the believers, to encourage his brothers and sisters in these churches in various locations. And it's called exiled, again, because they've been exiled from their homes, but also because the idea being that we're also exiled um, here, that this is not our long-term home, that there's a a new heavens and a new earth one day that will come, and that uh, we were created for another kingdom at one point. And so that's the other purpose in that terminology. Now, last week, uh, Pastor Michael started in chapter 4 of First Peter, actually started in verse 3 of chapter 4, um, and, and what he was talking about was the difference between the unbelieving life and the believing life. So a believer's life, how it should look markedly different than those of the unbelievers. And so he was challenging us that even when, when we're faced with difficult circumstances and when people don't, when they ridicule us based on not participating in the things that they're doing, that we still need to go on showing love. We still need to love one another well and continue to display the love of Christ in our lives. And so this week, we're going to pick up, pick up in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 12. We're going to cover 12 through 19 this morning. Um, but before I dive into the text, I want to give just a very brief um, history. I'll tell you a little story about um, an evangelism strategy that was very popular uh, when I was in high school. So when I was the summer between my freshman and sophomore years, uh, we went to our national denominational conference down in Atlanta, and our youth pastor wanted to extend our stay so that we could also do ministry within the city. And the whole purpose was to do street evangelism among the homeless in Centennial Park. And so the, the plan was we would go after the conference was over, after we spent our time being encouraged through the word and having an arena full of, of youth singing the praises of Jesus, that we would take that, that fire, that passion that we just riled up and go to the streets and minister to homeless people there. And one of the tools that we utilized was something, it was a gospel tract, uh, and it was something called the Four Spiritual Laws. Have any of you guys heard of those? Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of familiarity with those. And so we were expected to pretty much memorize these. Now, we had them in our hands to reference, so if we got nervous talking to complete strangers about the gospel as, as youth, we could reference that and say, here's what the book says. Um, but it was something that was, this was our approach. So we'd go out, start a conversation, we'd hand them. Um, we wanted to provide food, too. Being high schoolers, we were pretty much gourmet chefs, so we made them peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to deliver to them, right? So we have this peanut butter and jelly sandwich Whatever it was, that was something. Here's some sustenance. But we want to tell you about the love of Jesus. So we open this up. The very first law, it says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. At the time, I was like, yeah, that's totally true. I get that. And I'm not saying it's not true because it is true, but there's... There's a nuance to this, right? We understand, you have to understand wonderful from an eternal perspective. Because if, if I'm coming at this as an unbeliever who's got no exposure to God, and you tell me, 
God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. I have a very specific idea of what wonderful looks like. And it may not very well be in line with what wonderful actually is in God's plans for us. And I think that was a, one of the things that I've learned through the years is that oftentimes we bring people to this. There's other laws too, but I just want to key in on this one for now. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. So we tell people this. This was our approach there, and it's a very common one actually. At least it was, you know, 15 years ago or so, 20 maybe now it's been. Um, but it was a very common thing. And you're going to someone and you're saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Their entire understanding of that is not going to be in line, very likely at least, with what God's plan for their life might actually be, as we see spelled out in Scripture. And one of the challenges that we find is that some people take this kind of concept and they say, you know what, you're a child of the king, you should live like a child of the king. You should be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Now listen to me, there's nothing Wrong. if the Lord has blessed you with good health and great wealth, then praise his name for that. And you can use that to do great things for the kingdom. So that's not a sinful thing. But if our pursuit is in those things, that's a whole other story. And so if we say something like, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and as an unbeliever, I'm hearing that with my ears, and I'm saying, well, my wonderful life is, you know, I want this beautiful, beautiful thing, and I want this wonderful home and a, and a family, or maybe I don't want a family. Maybe I just want to live the bachelor life and do my thing. They might start to draw these other conclusions that are clearly not in line with what God's plan is for us as believers. And so one of the challenges is that oftentimes we don't bring people to the hope of the gospel. We bring them to a hope of what they think Jesus will give to them. We think this is what Jesus will give to you. You get a wonderful life. What if the wonderful life looks something like this? What if that's part of God's wonderful plan for your life? If you can't tell what that depiction is, it's in the Colosseum, and it's people awaiting these lions to tear them apart. And this was in the not-too-distant future from the people Peter's writing to. You have the Roman powers coming down on people at this point. This would have very likely, very possibly been an outcome for them. You're going to look someone in the face Say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life when this is a part of that wonderful plan. And so I think we have to be careful as to how we present things, especially when we look at what the scriptures actually represent for what God has in store for us. That said, let's turn then to 1 Peter chapter 4. And we'll start in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange we're happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. <clears throat> but if none of you, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I want to jump back then to the beginning, that first verse, verse 12. 
Here's what Peter's doing. He says, beloved. He starts with that term, beloved. This word, the Greek word there, some of you might be familiar with the word agape. It's a divine love. It's the root word here is from the word agape. So he's not just saying, you're beloved by me. He's saying you're beloved by God. And here's why this is important. Because the very next phrase, and what he's been doing throughout this whole letter, is talking about the very high likelihood of suffering. And there's a common thing that we can do, and that could have happened at that time as well, where we start to think my suffering is directly associated with God's lack of favor, or God's hand no longer being with me. Where did you go, God? Why am I su- Do you not see me in my suffering? We respond like that, and, and sometimes we need to be reminded that even in the midst of our fiery trials that we're facing, we're still loved by God. We don't need to, we forget that. We forget, and we think God's forgotten us, but he's never forgotten us. He's loving us, and so he's reminding them, be loved. You are loved divinely. You have a divine love on you. You have God's love on you. Then he goes on to say, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Now, he's already said in chapter 1, um, this, this, he brought up the idea of a fire that tests you. In fact, in that place, he's talking about the refining that takes place from a fire. In fact, as you look all throughout the scriptures, you see it in the Psalms, it's a very common illustration that there's a refining that takes place when you're tested by fire. See, I hear the word test, and oftentimes I think, I go back to my school days, oh man, a test? I got to cram for this, I got to figure out what... What do I need to know for this test that's coming? But the reality is that when things like a precious metal is tested by fire, it's a purification that takes place. There's a refining that the Lord can do. Even when the fires of this life are coming upon us, he can be refining us and making us more like Jesus, bringing us to a greater dependence on Christ as we have that fire burn us. Now, all that said, does a fiery trial feel awesome? No. I mean, I, I don't know anyone that's like, bring on the fire. I want it. I want to burn. I want to feel that pain. I don't think any of us are desiring that pain. But the reality is that there's an outcome that the Lord is working in our lives, working in our hearts through that fire. He's refining us. He's purifying us. And so when these things come upon us, we shouldn't be surprised by it when these tests come. And then he goes on to say, like I said, do not be surprised as though something strange we're happening to you. Now, many of the people that are receiving this are, are Jewish converts. They've, they've come to Christ, but their background would be in Judaism. So they're reading this, and they're understanding this is not something strange at all for God's people to suffer at the hands of others. You look at the prophets, you look at what Jesus himself said, that a prophet is not without honor in his own town. You see this concept everywhere throughout the scriptures That God's chosen people, when we live lives, when they lived lives that honored him and put him above the rest, there was very often ridicule and persecution from those around them. Cultures around them would not embrace them. So don't be surprised at these fiery trials that are coming upon you as though something strange. This is not strange. Not only is it not strange in the history of Israel, but it's not even strange in their recent past and what's happening all around them. They can see other believers, the apostles themselves, suffered in this way. So he's telling them, don't be surprised when these things come upon you. Don't be surprised by it. And then he goes on in verse 13. And he says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Here's one of the things that you have to remember that I had to remember as I was even preparing for this message. This is the command, right? Don't be surprised, but rejoice. 
And he's not saying this to be trite, to say your suffering doesn't matter, it's unimportant, it's, you know, God doesn't care about that. He's not saying that at all. But he's telling us to choose to rejoice even in the midst of these fiery trials. He's not just spouting this out. If you look in Acts chapter 5, the apostles were proclaiming the name of Jesus and the Jewish leaders brought them before them and they confronted them and they commanded them, stop preaching in that name. Stop telling people about Jesus. And the apostles' response was, you decide whether it's right for us to obey man over God. Then it goes on to say that uh, because they did not like that response, the Jewish leaders, they actually beat the apostles, and among them was Peter. Peter has lived this firsthand, choosing to rejoice in the midst of this. And that's what it says. It says, the apostles left that place rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name, for the name of Christ. They chose to rejoice because they realized that God had ordained for them to suffer for the name of Christ. They were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. I don't know about you guys, but that's a far cry from my general perspective. Oftentimes when things get tough, I'm like, Lord, my first instinct, Lord, what's going on here? My first instinct isn't to rejoice and say, thank you, Lord, for this trial. Thank you for the work you're accomplishing in me through this. My first instinct is to run from it. So then he says, but rejoice. And here's part of why you can rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. When we suffer for the name of Jesus, when we live a life that is countercultural because Christ has called us to, and the culture's going this way, and the gospel pulls us this way, and we stand firm for Christ, we're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. It's an incredible reality. You know, for anyone in this room who's been baptized, it's that whole concept of you're you're buried with Christ and raised with him. It's that association, that affiliation with Christ. So in this case, you share in the sufferings of Christ. And we know that Christ took on the suffering that our sins were deserving of. And here we are sharing in that suffering with Christ. There's an affiliation and association with Christ. And so we can rejoice. One, because we also know the ending. We know that it didn't end with Christ being crucified on the cross. We know that he rose from the dead and had victory over the evil that had been done to him and over the suffering that he'd experienced. So we know that there will be an end to it as we share in Christ's sufferings. But it's also a relatability. It gives us a greater perspective. As we share in his sufferings, we have a better understanding of what he endured, not nearly to the extent that he did, but we get a little picture of what he endured on our behalf, and it gives us a deeper sense of gratitude. So then it says um, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And here's the reality. If we choose to rejoice now, how much greater are we going to be able to rejoice when the end of all things comes and his glory is revealed? I mean, I don't know what else we can do but rejoice. The end of all suffering, the end of all of our sinful tendencies, the end of all of our selfishness, it's all done away with in the presence of the glorious resurrected Lord and Savior of this universe, Jesus Christ. We stand in his glory. How can we not rejoice? But we start now. We choose to rejoice here and now because we can, because we're called to, because we have a perspective that allows us to understand if I rejoice now, how much greater am I going to rejoice when the end of this suffering is behind me? We rejoice now towards the future hope and we rejoice then at the realized hope. It's an incredible gift when we think of it from that perspective. That doesn't mean our natural tendency is going to be to rejoice 
when suffering comes, when trials come our way. Then he goes on. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When I read that verse, my mind was immediately taken back to the Beatitudes, to the Sermon on the Mount. And I thought about how Peter was there. And my guess is as Peter's penning this letter, those words are echoing through his head the whole time. In fact, I'll have it put up on the screen here from Matthew chapter 5. Just look at the similarities in the terminology here. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As a matter of fact, those two verses kind of sum up all three of the previous verses, right? Don't be surprised. This is exactly what happened to the prophets before you. So I feel like as Peter's writing this letter to all these Christian brothers and sisters, I think he's got that Sermon on the Mount playing in his mind. You're blessed when you're persecuted and people are saying false things about you on account of Jesus. So that's the blessing that we get. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Again, oftentimes I don't think that I view that as a blessing firsthand. My gut instinct is not to rejoice over that, to rejoice when I'm ridiculed, when I'm pushed off because I'm, I'm labeled a bigot because I stand on the word of God. Now, that doesn't mean be a jerk, right? Clearly, the scriptures don't call us to be a jerk to unbelievers. We're called to love our neighbor. But it does mean standing firm. And if people insult you because you stand firm on the word of God while continuing to love them, then you're blessed. Not only that, but then it says, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That terminology there isn't just blessed, uh, isn't just um, God resting upon you. It's, it's, it's an idea of favor. Like God's favor rests upon you. What an incredible idea that, that is, that while you're suffering, while you're being insulted, his favor's upon you. That's an incredible gift. Not only that, but it affirms to us that we have the Holy Spirit within us. When we're suffering because we're standing on the word of God and we're representing Christ faithfully in this world as much as we are able through the power of the Holy Spirit to represent him faithfully, then we're insulted. It affirms that we've got the Holy Spirit within us. It affirms that, that God's spirit rests upon you. What a gift we have in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the empowerment that we receive from the Holy Spirit. What a gift. And when it talks about rejoicing and suffering, the only way I see that being possible is as we lean into the Holy Spirit for strength. There's no way on my flesh that I'm going to rejoice if I face suffering, especially the suffering that our brothers and sisters were facing in the very near future as they were reading this letter, and brothers and sisters around the world that are facing those things. So then he goes on, and he says in verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. And I highlighted just the word evildoer, not because it's the most severe of the terms there, but anything else kind of falls under the umbrella of evildoer. Murderer, thief, meddler. So this is kind of where he's setting the difference, right? Don't suffer on account of, of the evil things that you're doing. Because the reality is that there were situations where the same fate would await both a Christian and a criminal. But don't suffer for the same. And there was also, there were movements around there, like one called asceticism, where people would intentionally withhold any pleasure and would intentionally experience suffering because they thought that was a good thing. So they would go out of their way to suffer, even if that meant doing evil things, thinking that that would be what God would have them do. 
That's not the case. Let none of you suffer for doing that which is wrong. This kind of suffering results from disobedience to God. That's the suffering that none of us as believers should participate in. Now, does it happen at times? Yeah, when we sin, sometimes, like like the scriptures say, God will not be mocked, a man reaps what he sows. So if you sow in the flesh and you're doing evil deeds, there's a good chance that you will experience suffering because of the evil that you're doing. That's a different kind of suffering than the suffering that he's calling us to endure for the name of Christ, when we associate with Christ. It's a very different thing. This suffering results from disobedience. And on the contrary, in verse 16, he says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So this is the juxtaposition, right? You have on the one hand, suffering for doing evil, suffering for disobedience to God, and this is a suffering that results from obedience to God. They're two different things, even if the outcome is the same from our perspective on earth, even if the outcome matches consequences for the disobedience to God and the consequences for our obedience to God in this life could look the same. We have no greater example of this than Jesus himself on the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, he was put on that cross on Golgotha. He wasn't the only one there that day, right? The scriptures tell us there were two criminals on either side of him. The same fate awaited Christ, the innocent, righteous, blameless creator of the universe that awaited these criminals. And especially in this time, I mean, that Roman oppression was coming down hard. You don't get to be the greatest world power by taking criminal actions lightly, by taking insurrection lightly, right? So Rome was, they were brutal in their execution of justice, in the execution of their laws. Not only that, but then as we saw, so these people, they're facing this this crucifixion next to Christ, the innocent, blameless Jesus on the cross, the same end, so you think, as those two criminals on either side. And you know that this is the case because there's a dialogue that's recorded in Luke. He talks about the idea that the one is mocking Christ. The one criminal says, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. And the other guy says, have you no fear of God? This man is innocent. Then he goes on to say, we are receiving, we are reaping what our actions have received, have, have, um, have brought about. And then he goes on to say, remember me, when you enter. And then Jesus says, I tell you the truth, this day you will be with me in paradise to that criminal. But the reality is the one criminal acknowledged, I'm getting what I deserve. I deserve this brutally painful suffering. I understand this man has done nothing to deserve this. He's done nothing but speak the truth and love faithfully and be obedient. My disobedience resulted in this. His obedience resulted in this. And the same thing with that picture I showed earlier of the Colosseum. Both criminals and Christians would be thrown into that shortly thereafter. In fact, by the time some of these people might have been seeing this letter, it would be coming upon them very shortly, very quickly. And before it got full-blown to the level of persecution that they would experience, you can believe for sure that there were some hot fires burning against them in the culture, even at that time. But the Colosseum awaited the criminals and the Christians, the same fate could await both those who obey God and those who disobey God. But what's the difference? Well, we're suffering and we're rejoicing in our suffering. If we rejoice in our suffering while a watchful world has their eyes on us, they have no explanation for that. 
There's a, there's, there's a passage in scripture that talks about um, continuing to do your good works that others might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. As we choose to rejoice when it makes no sense to rejoice, by any, any, any of our understandings of what rejoicing should be, there's something that that does. There's a way in which that leaves an impression on people. Now, that doesn't mean that that's automatically going to result in them saying, yeah, I want to suffer. They might think, that guy's nuts. He's rejoicing when he's, doing, when he's being persecuted like this. They're rejoicing when they're being insulted, maligned, false accusations brought against them. What a difference that is than going and running down the hall and telling the next guy, can you believe what this jerk said about me? It's a very different reality, right? When you, instead of going down that path and leading yourself into sin and, and blaming God for the suffering, instead leaning in and saying, Lord, give me strength to rejoice because I'm sharing in the sufferings of Christ as I walk in your ways and not in the ways of the world. What a difference that makes. So then it goes on and he says, glorify God in that name. We can go back one slide. The glorifying God in that name. There's been some discussion as to that word name. Should it be translated matter or name? In this place, it's most likely translated name. Best, that's the best translation from what they can tell. But name refers to Christian. Suffering as a Christian. So you suffer as an evildoer. It's a very different thing. If you're suffering as a Christian, then don't be ashamed of it, but give God glory. We see this throughout the scriptures too. Paul's in prison, and when he's in prison... Um, at one point, they're singing the praises. And, uh, and as they sing the praise while they're in prison, the chains fall off. The crazy things happen, and you know the guard's about to kill himself, the Roman guard. And he says, don't harm yourself. None of us have left. There's a power in choosing to rejoice when you're suffering. And we see it time and time again in the scriptures. There's a power in the testimony of God's faithfulness to us when we choose to lean into him. So we'll move on to verse 17. And here it says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then he says, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now that's actually a quote from Proverbs 11, most likely out of the Septuagint. And the Septuagint would have been, it's a, it's a Greek Old Testament that most of Jesus' contemporaries would have been familiar with. Because it was a Greek-speaking culture, most of the apostles, this would have been the scriptures that they would read, the translation that they would have been reading. And so if you look in your Hebrew Bible, or in our English Bible translated from Hebrew, it wouldn't quite read the same way. But based on what you see in the Septuagint, in the way that they translated it then, it would make sense that this would actually be a quote from the book of Proverbs. And what he's saying here. It's a, it's a type of argument that was common in Judaism called a call wahomer or call wahomer. And what it is, is it, it means light to heavy. What that means is if it's true in a lesser degree, then it will also be true to a greater degree. So this, this very type of illustration that Peter's using here would actually land very familiar with them. They would understand, well, of course, if it's true for the Christian, how much greater is that true for the unchristian? And so there's, a, there's automatically they would understand, oh, that's, that's light to heavy, got it. That's the illustration that he's using to say, judgment to begin at the household of God. So if this refining fire, if this, the, the fiery trial comes upon us and we feel the heat and it burns us and it hurts, it hurts to be refined. It hurts to have our impurities burned away from us. 
This is not to minimize the pain and the suffering that we can experience. But it is to say that what awaits those who have not trusted in Christ is far worse. And that should break our hearts. That should compel us to all the more want to rejoice over our suffering so that we can be be representing Christ and compelling others towards that. Our hearts should be breaking and burdened for the eternal wrath of God that's going to rest upon those who don't trust in Christ. That's, That's the reality. The reality is that the fire that's coming to burn us will be an unquenchable fire against the unbelievers. And that's awful. It should burden us. It should grieve us. It should motivate us to obey God's word to a place where we can do as much in our power as possible to to honor him and to give him glory to encourage those people towards the gospel, to point them, direct them to the hope that only Jesus can bring. Not a hope of a wonderful life from a temporal, temporal perspective, but a hope of an eternal security, a hope of an eternal variety one that will last beyond just this life, hope into the next. And what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? We know it plainly from the scriptures, and he doesn't even have to write it. We know they will stand condemned. Stand condemned, and that fire again will be unquenchable upon them. So then in verse 19, he pretty much wraps up everything. It kind of makes me think of Ecclesiastes when the writer says, now all has been heard and here is the conclusion of the matter. It feels a bit like that here. He says, therefore, based on everything I've just written to you, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. How about that? Suffer according to God's will. Then we talk about these prosperity gospel preachers representing a totally different gospel than what the scriptures actually tell us. This is sometimes what the Lord has in store for us, that we would suffer in accordance with his will. And again, we need to look no further than Jesus. When Jesus is praying right before his arrest, knowing what's coming, knowing he's about to go to the cross to take on our sins and our shame and our guilt, he's pleading with the Father and he says, Father, if possible, may this cup pass. But then ultimately he says, but not my will, but your will be done. He submits to the will of the Father, and the will of the Father was that Christ would suffer. That Christ would suffer. Innocent, sinless, blameless Jesus, that he would suffer so that he could redeem broken sinners like ourselves. So when we face suffering in the name of Christ, when we're living our lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, again, in the power of the Spirit, as we walk step by step with the Spirit and we stand on the truth instead of going with the whims of culture and we find ourselves suffering in the name of Christ, it may very well be that it's in accordance with God's will, that God is desiring for us to endure that suffering. It may be for our own benefit to refine us It may be for the benefit of those who are watching us suffer and who are seeing us suffer with rejoicing in our hearts. And I don't say that to be trite. Please understand. I'm not saying, I just, I want to make sure that's understood. I want you guys to know that I'm not saying our suffering should just be brushed off and ignored. It's not that. But when we choose to rejoice, when things are are hard, when things are almost impossible, because we know that God is at work in our hearts through that process, It does something in our own hearts and it opens up a door for others to witness something 
that is different than, than anything that this world has to offer, a hope that goes beyond here. And then finally it says, entrust their souls. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Entrusting our souls to a faithful creator. At the end of the day, we can rest in the reality that we serve a faithful God. And he is faithful, not only faithful to redeem us, but faithful to see us through every single trial, every single fiery trial that comes upon us. He's faithful to see us through that, to empower us to get through that, to enable us to rejoice even when we suffer. We also have a faithful creator who's endured the suffering himself. So we see in the book of Hebrews that we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us, but who's been tempted in every way as we were, yet without sin. He's faced it all. He's faced suffering to a degree that none of us will ever be able to comprehend. And so our option is to bow down before the King of kings and the Lord of lords and give him thanks for his faithfulness. And if he has ordained that we ought to suffer for the name of Jesus, then let us take that suffering because whatever suffering he brings to us is nothing compared to the suffering he has endured for us. So as we talk about suffering, that actually leads us right into our so what's for the morning. What do we do with this? Well, when we suffer for Christ, brothers and sisters, when you suffer for Christ, first and foremost, as we see in the text, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised by it. We should expect, you know, a lot of times we see there are things that are happening in the culture all around us, and, and sometimes you, you blink and a new, a new thing has been pushed out by the culture, pushed in upon us, and there's a new, a new um, not, not just a policy, sometimes there's policies in place, but sometimes it's just a, a new wave of thinking, and we think, oh my goodness, the culture's changing so rapidly, what are we going to do? We should not be surprised when the culture doesn't embrace the values that God puts forth in his word. We shouldn't be surprised with that. And we also shouldn't be surprised when our values, because we're clinging to Christ, differ from theirs, and it results in them persecuting us. We should not be surprised by that. Secondly, here's the tough one, rejoice and be glad. And it's tough, again, because in our flesh, we don't want to rejoice. We want to ask God why this is happening. But ultimately, when we choose to rejoice and be glad in the midst of suffering, it it shows that we rely on Christ. It shows that we depend on him, and we recognize his lordship over all of it. And third, trust in your faithful God. It's right out of verse 19. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator. Rest in the fact that we serve a God who is faithful. And even if it means our suffering takes us to the very end of this life, and it causes us, and we die as a martyr, even if that's where things land, our suffering is so minuscule. It's, so, it's temporary. And then we have all of eternity in the glorious presence of our Lord to celebrate. So we can trust in his faithfulness, even if that's his will. And then finally, as the very last words of the text say, continue to do good. Even when suffering comes, don't stop doing good. Don't stop walking in the righteousness that God has called us to walk into. We need to continue to press on, to lean into the Holy Spirit for strength, and continue to do that which he has called us to do. Because again, we have the eyes of a watchful world who are watching us to see. They hear we're Christians, and and they are. They are paying attention. And a lot of people in our culture especially have heard the word Christian, and immediately there's a bad taste in their mouth. 
to get an idea of these hypocritical, whatever, this or that, these bigots, this, 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 that. But if we can continue to do good, we can continue to outpour the love of Christ on all around us, whether they're a part of the body of Christ or not, then we can see the Lord do a work through us and in us that we would never otherwise get to see a glimpse of and get to be a part of. So this time, I want to turn our attention then to the Lord's Supper, to communion. And so here at Village, we we take communion every week. And the reason we do that is because we want to keep the gospel ever before our minds, ever before our eyes. And when we partake of these elements, as I mentioned before, I want to kind of circle back then into what this represents. It represents Christ on that cross. And the blood is representative, the the juice that we get is representative of his blood. And the bread that we get is representative of his body, both of which were laid down for us, given for us. And we partake to remember that. We do this in remembrance of the suffering that he endured. And as we look at the suffering that he endured, we then should have that power to be able to endure suffering in our own right. Again, not on our strength, in the power that the Holy Spirit gives us. So we lean into him for strength and watch what he does with our brokenness. So we do have a couple of asks when it comes to communion. What will happen is the ushers will come forward. They'll pass out the elements. Um, and, and if you've trusted in Jesus, whether Village Church is your home church or not, we invite you to partake. We practice open communion here, which means anyone who has trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone for their salvation, please join us and partake. We are part of the body of Christ together. Now, if you haven't made that decision to follow Christ uh, at this time, then we would ask that you, you let that pass. And, and instead, come and talk to myself. Come and talk to anyone that you'll see on the platform this morning, or we'll have people down here to my right at the end of service for prayer. Just come and have a conversation with one of us. We would love to share about the love of Christ, the hope that comes that only from him, the, way, the only way that our sins can be forgiven, the only way that suffering for us will end in this life and not continue beyond here is through hope in Jesus and trusting in him. And so if you have not made that decision, please, I would love the opportunity to talk with you and, uh, or, or talk to someone else that's going to be up here so that we can have that conversation with you. That's greater than, than, than simply partaking of, of juice and bread that, that you're not understanding what you're doing. And then also, once you receive, just so you know, it's, a, it's two cups stacked, one in the other. One has a juice, pull it down, and you'll have the bread underneath it. You can hold them, and the band will come up, and we will sing. We'll sing to the Lord together. And so at that time, you can stand up, you can sing, and then after that, we will all partake together as a sign of our unity in Christ. But before we partake, let's just take a moment, and after we've heard the word this morning, let's, let's go before the Lord and ask if there's anywhere that he wants to continue to be at work in our hearts, if he's got to burn away impurities in our hearts, that we would lean into Christ for strength. So let's take a moment and reflect on the sacrifice that Christ has made for us.